Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and welcome to Episode 8 of my Crisis to Opportunity podcast. Continuing our exploration of the role that emotions play in how we respond to a crisis, the focus of today's podcast is fear versus courage. There is no more fundamental emotion than fear. When a crisis arises, it hits us like a sucker punch to the gut. It's unexpected, painful, and it can send us reeling. It can numb our mind and paralyze our body. As I discussed in the last episode of my podcast, the strength of our fear response depends upon whether we initially view the crisis as a disappointment, low to moderate situational threat, or devastation, high existential threat. At the same time, we possess courage, which can help us move beyond the fear. Courage can enable you to face or let go of your fear and direct your efforts at overcoming the thing that you fear the most in a crisis. From Nelson Mandela, the South African activist and political leader, the brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Despite how truly unpleasant fear feels to experience, it's actually a good emotion. Why, you may ask? Because it sends us a necessary and urgent message. We're faced with an immediate threat to our survival. Fear is instantaneous by its very nature. If fear didn't arise immediately, the chances are we wouldn't react quickly enough to avert the threat and survive. As Gavin De Becker, the author of The Gift of Fear, has noted, true fear is a gift. Unwanted fear is a curse. It's up to us to reject the curse and accept this gift and use the gift wisely. Unfortunately, as I noted in an earlier podcast, this fear reaction that was so effective in ensuring our survival in primitive times can actually work against us in the face of the many crises we see today. Our primal experience of fear as an instigator of immediate action is most often more destructive than constructive when we confront the complex crises of today. Where swift and instinctive reactions once served as well, they now may cause us to act in ways that are rash and ill-advised. The negativity and panic that have been fear's constant companions for eons now prevent us from reasonable thought, sound problem-solving, and cogent decision-making, which are all essential to effectively overcoming today's crises. Also, fear is an all-encompassing emotion that impacts how we think, what other emotions we experience, how our bodies feel, and then, ultimately, the actions we take in response. And one thing is absolutely certain about fear. The reaction can't be prevented. 300 million years of instinct can't be readily undone. Instead, the best you can hope for during the early stages of a crisis is to move from the fear that originates in the amygdala and shift to the cerebral cortex. This change allows you to gain control of your emotions when a calm heart and a cool head are absolutely necessary for your survival. Though fear can't be avoided, it can and must be mitigated when faced with a crisis. Your goal is to limit the intensity and the duration of the fear that you experience when confronted with a crisis so that your more highly evolved capabilities, your cerebral cortex, can assert themselves and guide you toward a solution to the crisis at hand. In contrast to fear, courage is among the most admired attributes in people and one that we all aspire to possess and demonstrate. Let's be realistic. We revere acts of courage from our military, political activists, first responders, and just plain ordinary people placed in extraordinary situations. Courage is defined as the state or quality of mind or spirit that enables one to face danger, fear, or vicissitudes with self-possession, confidence, and resolution. Few people know whether they have courage because the only way to know if you do is if you're faced with a situation that requires you to act courageously. In modern society, let's be realistic, there are relatively few opportunities to demonstrate courage in noticeable ways. 
such as the passengers on the ill-fated United Flight 93, who overcame hijackers to prevent the plane from crashing into a building in New York City on 9-11. Yet, people act bravely in many ways, big and small, every day in their lives. For example, a parent advocating for her children at school, a student confronting bullies, or asking somebody to marry you. Despite what seems obvious and intuitive about your understanding of courage, there are a few mistaken beliefs that many people hold about it. First, many believe that courage is the absence of fear. To the contrary, if you ask most people who act bravely, they will likely tell you that they were all scared to death. What distinguishes people who show courage, like a soldier fighting in a war, a downhill ski racer hurling down a mountain at 80 miles per hour, or even J.K. Rowling, whose first Harry Potter book was rejected by 12 publishers, before finding a publisher. From others, is not their fearlessness. They were, in fact, very afraid, but rather their ability to overcome their fear. The fact is that, just like our primitive forebears, you may not be around very long if you don't experience fear in a crisis. If for nothing else, fear tells you to wake up and pay attention because there's something very important that you need to know. It's what you do after you take notice that determines whether you're courageous. Second, many people believe that they're born either gutsy or timid in the face of challenges. That's just the way they are, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's little doubt that there are some innate influences on courage. We all know people who have been risk-takers since they were babies, and these sorts are often drawn to paths in which courage is a necessity, like mountain climbing or entrepreneurship. At the same time, as I often say, genetics is not destiny. In other words, if you aren't bold in the obvious sorts of ways, doesn't mean that you can't develop courage in your daily life, or when confronted by a crisis. Third, being courageous isn't about who you are, but rather what you do. You may have already some preconceived notions about how courageous you are. You may think yourself to be a very brave person, or you may believe that you're as fearful as the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. Yet to label yourself in a binary way, you're either courageous or you're not, doesn't do justice to the complexity and malleability of human beings. In fact, courage is not necessarily a trait that applies to all aspects of life. Instead, courage can be situation-specific. For example, you may have courage when it comes to physical activities. For example, you're a daredevil on a mountain bike. Or you may be brave enough to quit your job and seek out a new career path. Yet you may lack courage when confronted with a spider or in social situations, like asking someone out on a date or speaking up at a work meeting. Importantly, for you to embrace courage, you must believe that you're capable of it in the face of fear. Think of it this way. How do you know when you're courageous? Courage isn't based on what you think, what you say, or even who you are. Rather, you judge how brave you are by your actions. Did you act in a courageous way? If so, then you're brave. Fourth, people think of courage in a fairly narrow way that focuses on extreme behavior. For example, Alex Honnold is a free solo rock climber who puts his life on the line every time he climbs, alone and without ropes. My gosh, what courage that takes. One slip means certain death. But some years ago, a group of extreme athletes were asked what kinds of people they believed were really brave, and their answers were surprising. Many didn't see themselves as particularly courageous because they learned the consequences of extreme behavior immediately and, admittedly, often painfully. Instead, they believed that the people who had the most courage were entrepreneurs who commit their lives and their livelihoods to businesses that can take years to determine their success or failure. From Guy Kawasaki, the founder of Alltop, ideas are easy, implementation is hard. Courage is required for any situation that you perceive as threatening in some way, whether it's a physical danger, a financial risk, a serious injury, or a new relationship. 
It's also necessary when you don't feel confident or capable of overcoming the crisis. As I just stated, courage is determined not by your thoughts, emotions, or intentions, but rather by your actions. Yet acts of courage lie at the end of a sequence of internal events that begins when a crisis strikes and culminates in actions that either resolve the crisis or better enable you to manage it. The first step in developing courage is to identify the cause of your fear. That is, what is the underlying issue that's threatening to you? It might be financial ruin, death due to an illness, loss of a job, or the end of a marriage. Having a deep understanding of what the crisis represents to you can make the amorphous nature of crises these days seem more tangible and manageable, thus reducing your fear. As part of this exercise, I found that making a list of the things that you fear most in the crisis has multiple benefits. First, writing them down, and I encourage you to record them with a pen and paper rather than typing them into your computer, tablet, or phone, because the simple act of writing appears to have a more beneficial effect than typing. Acts as a cathartic that releases the emotions you're feeling from your psyche and body. Second, listing the fear-provoking items makes the crisis more concrete and manageable, which also leads to insights, realizations, and potential courses of action in response to the crisis. As you write, you engage your evolved brain and disengage your amygdala, thus replacing emotion with reason. In doing so, you separate irrational fear from rational concerns. Third, you can assess the resources you have available to respond to the crisis. These resources can be either specific to the crisis or related to your general capabilities that you can bring to bear on the crisis, including experience, knowledge, skill sets, strategies, and support. As part of this appraisal, you can recall past crises you've been faced with in which you demonstrated courage and overcame the crises to remind yourself that you're capable of prevailing over the current crisis. Additionally, you can acknowledge the range of competencies that you bring to the table. You can also reach out to others who can help you through the crisis. This evaluation shows you that you possess certain abilities to resolve the crisis. Fourth, acting with courage is risky because by definition it involves facing something that poses a threat that can't be readily resolved. That's the nature of a crisis, of course. The most powerful force that fuels courage and the willingness to accept those risks is confidence. If you believe you can overcome the crisis, the more readily you'll be willing to put yourself out there and take the risk of showing courage. Your confidence will grow, and by extension, your willingness to act courageously through bringing the crisis to a more understandable and controllable level and recognizing all the resources you have at your disposal to confront the crisis. Fifth, you should get organized in responding to the crisis. This planning includes gathering all relevant information, exploring options, and making decisions. After planning, create a plan A for how you're going to take action to resolve the crisis. A part of this plan should include an analysis of various scenarios, including what could realistically go wrong. Next, based on that analysis, develop a plan B, and if needed, a plan C for when Murphy's Law kicks in. These plans make what had been scary and overwhelming more familiar, predictable, and controllable by breaking down the enormity of the task that the crisis presented to you into more manageable chunks. In this process, you actively engage your evolved brain and create separation from your initial primitive emotional reactions to the crisis, that is, fear, all of which will further bolster your confidence and make acting courageously easier. Finally, to act with courage, you must accept that you may not be able to resolve the crisis to your satisfaction. Despite your best efforts, the sad reality is that crises don't always turn around, and they're not always resolved in the way you want. In some cases, marriages end, family members die, and careers don't rebound. These are definitely not feel-good endings to be sure, but not foregone conclusions either. Regardless of the outcome, without courage,
crises rarely end well. In other words, the odds go from bad to worse that the crisis will resolve in your favor. In contrast, while there are no guarantees of a happy ending, the chance of a good resolution when you act courageously increases dramatically. For Mark Twain, the legendary American author, courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not the absence of fear. I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and thanks for listening to Episode 8 of Crisis to Opportunity, and be on the lookout for Episode 9 in the near future.